as it is as we come into this season, we are doing a, we've been doing a series of select psalms. Um, and uh, tonight, with the cross and the resurrection before us, uh, I wanted to look at Psalm 22 together, a psalm of the cross. Now, I've given you a handout, some of you. Uh, there were some on the back table, or at the, on the foyer table, here and here. Um, it's not my work. I just kind of maybe made it a little cleaner for handout. This is actually done by Dr. Bill Barrick, um, who is a, a linguist and a Hebrew professor. Uh, I don't know that he's still on faculty uh, uh, from Master's Seminary. I appreciated him when I was going over to teach biblical Hebrew in Nepal. In Nepal I was trying to find a free textbook that, so it wouldn't cost anything to the students. And he had one available. His textbook was available online. He, gave me, he was great sending me resources and glad to be a part of uh, bringing the Hebrew language to Nepal. Anyway, this outline takes the, the, the events of cal- cavalry and the, the, the events of the cross, puts them in kind of chronological order, and there's the main scripture for each one. And then over in the far right column, you'll see it says Psalm 22. And so the Psalm 22 is such a clear and bold and amazing prophetic um, declaration of the cross. You can actually see various events of that crucifixion. Here's the verse that goes along with them in in what follows in, in, in each of those events. So that's a helpful, and if right there is just a graphic, wow, Psalm um, 22 is just its fulfillments and manifestations seen throughout the, the period of the cross. I'll call one other thing to your attention. You may have heard sermons, uh, you've heard them if you've been here, on the sayings or the cries uh, from the cross, the seven sayings, the seven words. They've been called different things. The, the seven, seven utterances of our Lord from the cross. If you look in that event in the middle, you'll, look at, you'll, you'll find some words that are in italics. Uh, for example, the first one I see is in the top of the 10 a.m. section, Father, forgive them. Uh, down, skipping down a little bit into the next section, the 11 a.m., today you shall be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Those are the, the ones in italics are the seven famous sayings of the cross. Now, if you look at 1 p.m. and 2 p.m., each of those events, all four of them are in italics. And you'll notice all four of them are represented in Psalm 22. So of the um, seven famous uh, texts, from the, the, the seven words our Lord spoke from the cross, four come from Psalm 22. All of that tells me this psalm was very much in our Lord's mind and heart as he looked to the cross and as he was on the cross. Now, tonight I would like to um, not do justice to the song. Uh, Mr. Spurge, well, I'll, do it, I'll say it this way. James Boyce cited Charles Spurgeon about a book that's out there, and I'm sure it's probably not the only one. One preacher wrote a, a, a book where every verse he preached a sermon. So I'm going to just read through that book tonight to you. Well, just, but, you know, the seven sayings, each one is, is at least a sermon. And so tonight, though, I just want to get the big picture of the psalm to help you maybe think about, come back as we approach the cross, as we come into the season. Again, as I said, that's what I like to do at the Seder. This is, 
What was on our Lord's heart the night before he died for us? Well, part of that was Psalm 22. And again, the things I've said already um, express that. So uh, one more little thing just to kind of help you put it in context. Others have said this, and so I'll just point it out to you. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are um, often noted to be fit nicely together because they fit with some themes of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He's called the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, and the Chief Shepherd in the New Testament. In John chapter 10, that's often thought the whole chapter points to him as the Good Shepherd, you know, who lays down his life for the sheep. He's called the Great Shepherd in in Hebrews 13.10. And the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4. Well, these Psalms, 22, 23, and 24, go along with that. Psalm 22, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Psalm 23, um, the great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 24, um, the good shepherd, uh, the the chief shepherd. He's the... um, in Psalm 24. And so you could also say, another way to look at these Psalms, Psalm 22 is the cross, uh, Psalm 23 is the shepherd's crook, and Psalm 24 is the crown. Well, I just point those out to you as you're meditating in this portion of Scripture um, that might help you. This Psalm was written by, by David. Um, And right away that leads to many questions. Well, was this some kind of an expression of of David's experience that uh, telescopes to the cross? The struggle is, if you read through this psalm, you really have to stretch to think, how does any of this fit with David's experience? He went through suffering. He went through persecution. He went through oppression. And so I think there could be applications to his life, but I think it's just too clearly Um, This is pointing to the cross. And that's an amazing thing because uh, David wrote a thousand years before Christ. And the crucifixion, death by crucifixion, was a Roman invention. The Hebrews didn't practice it. The Assyrians, and I won't get graphic, but they had a, a practice that could be related, but it's not the same. Crucifixion was a Roman invention centuries after the time of David, and yet you read through this and say, there's the cross. If we look at this uh, psalm, it's actually divided into two sections. In verses 1 to 21, we'll see the cross. In verses 22 uh, to the end, we see uh, the resurrection. Psalm 22, verses 1 to 21 is, is um, a sad theme, a dark theme. The, the, section part, the second section is celebratory. It's exultant. Well, let me read just that first section, verses 1 to 21. To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? 
Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I am not silent. And am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me, O my strength. Hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. We'll put our greatest focus. And again, we'll just, I just want to pull out some themes for you to help you as you think through this psalm. In verses 1 and 2, he, he speaks of being abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This came at the end of the time of, of darkness. Remember, so as you know, he started off in light, and then as you look in here, for example, um, darkness came over the whole world for three hours, starting at noon. Toward the end of that, we're told, Luke twenty three forty four. now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And in that period of darkness, Matthew twenty seven forty six and fifteen and Mark fifteen thirty four record Jesus quoting Psalm 21. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark fifteen thirty four. and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, and this sounds different because this is actually recording the Aramaic expression, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Throughout scripture, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the Lord Jesus Christ cried out to my, to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, when God asks a question, he doesn't need information. This is an expression of the horror of abandonment by God. I've actually read uh, some commentaries where they say, well, God would never abandon anyone. God would never abandon him. 
But this is a judicial abandonment. It's the judge in righteousness being forced to turn his back on the guilty. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God has to turn his back on his son carrying our curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 In 2 Corinthians 5.21 we read, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became so fully identified with our sin that God made him to be sin, and God turns his back on sin. Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6 express in a bigger way, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. While we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, as 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 the day turned dark, that was the time of God's greatest judgment. You might remember this is in the Passover season. And during the Passover plagues, you know, the ten plagues, one of the plagues was a, a, a darkness you could feel. In, the, in Egypt, they worshipped the sun god, Ra. And um, God was showing in his various plagues that he was greater than any of the gods that they worshipped. Each plague seemed to be directed at one god after another, but one of the things God did in Egypt was he, he turned off the lights in Egypt. Darkness was an evidence of God's judgment. And so there at the cross, God turned off the lights as an evidence of his judgment. And at that time, I would understand that that's when our Lord was, under the, was bearing the full weight of our sin, him who knew no sin. And he was bearing the full wrath of God and the full separation from his father, a judicial separation. This one who had nothing but perfect, eternal fellowship with the Father is now abandoned and indeed is experiencing infinite wrath for our guilt. The horror of that was enough to to make him forget the physical pain that he had been through. Again, we could spend the night on that cry from the cross. But again, that's what says to me, Psalm 21 was in his heart. Or Pssalm 22, I should say, verse 1. In verses 3 to 5, then there's an expression of God's holiness. You are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted you and were not ashamed. This is our Lord Jesus Christ 
in the midst of this abandonment, in the midst of this judicial rejection and wrath, affirming God's goodness and holiness. Too often, in frankly much less horrific circumstances, though sometimes very difficult times, Christians have been known to, to, to deny the goodness of God and to question his goodness and his holiness and his faithfulness. Jesus is an example for us. And this, an unquestionable uh, onslaught from God, he affirms God's goodness and his faithfulness and his holiness. And, and in fact, that's the issue, his holiness, because of this plan of atonement is requiring the abandonment of the Son who bears our guilt. As he there bore our guilt, we then read on in verses 26 to 28. God, you're holy. Now verses 26 to, or 22, verses 6 to 8. But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now, those moments are some of the things that shocked me most about the cross. The brutality of crucifixion is horrible. But to see someone suffering like that and a righteous person in whom is, they knew there was no sin. Remember um, you know, who, who will accuse me of sin? You didn't have people stepping forward. And yet in the midst of his suffering, they're mocking him. But that's what was predicted by David. We see it in Matthew 27, verses 39 to 43. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. Would they? When he, come, when he got out of the tomb, did they believe him? He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Luke twenty three thirty five. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. I can't even see treating a condemned criminal that way, to take any delight in their suffering. Recognizing something is judicial, but just the, the heart of man here grieves me. And I think of poor Mary listening to all that. The cross condemned Christ for our guilt and it showed our nature. They knew his claims and they mock him. Notice it spoke of, of, of the piercing. They ridicule me. We'll talk about that later about the piercing. But I'm struck by Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.20 we read, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, in the spirit of grace and supplication. 
Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is speaking of the repentance at the coming of Christ. There towards the end of the period called Jacob's trouble or the tribulation is before the kingdom. They will, Israel will recognize the Messiah. Paul says that all Israel will be saved. Imagine the horror of the Jewish people when they recognized the Messiah they had rejected and mocked for 2,000 years was indeed their Messiah. They will look upon me whom they pierced. Can't you just hear crying out and screaming, what have we done? What have we done? Matter of fact, Isaiah 53 is often seen to be the confession of Israel as they, at, at that time. The mourning over him. Again, in verses 9 to 11, as part of the psalm and as part of our Lord's heart, a reflection of God's past care and God's faithfulness. But you are he who took me out of the womb, made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. From the moment of his conception, his, his miracle incarnation, God's care was so abundant. When Herod tried to assault him, flee to Egypt. One situation after another, God cared. The loving parents that God gave him, who, who did their best to raise God incarnate and the Messiah of Israel. So again, he is not questioning the goodness of God. He's grieving. That right now, he's not feeling the expression of that goodness because he's experiencing his wrath. In verses 12 to 18, we see the terrors of the cross. 12 and 13, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They, they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. He uses the pictures of these powerful animals, uh, the bull, the, the lion. And he's, he's, he's feeling his weakness as he is surrounded by these opponents and by these oppressors. <clears throat> they gape, he says, at their mouth with raging and roaring. They're, so here again, I think we see just the, the hateful mockery. Matthew twenty-seven forty-four says, Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Even those who should have had compassion since they shared his pain, mocked him. He was truly alone. Verses uh, 14 to 18, I am poured out like water. Think again of the cross. I am poured out like water. Have you ever just felt so totally weak? It's like you're melting. It's just, I'm melting. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, what a 
what a, 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 a graphic description of the cross. Just the weakness of, of melting, the, all my bones out of joint. That's, that's what the cross and hanging like that would do after hours. Strength dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd is a broken piece of ceramic pottery. You, you see this all the time in pictures of, of, of archaeological digs, just the little pieces of, of dried up clay. That's, that's what his mouth and tongue felt like. Dogs have surrounded me. Just the, the picture here being surrounded by ravenous wolves or dogs. He's been enclosed by, the, by an assembly of the wicked just outside the gates of the holy city, the city of David. They pierced my hands and feet. That certainly never happened to David and is such a, a, a clear expression of the cross. It's interesting, it's such a clear expression of the cross that, um, okay, here comes Drake giving you some of the unnecessary details. Our oldest, uh, our, our, our in our Greek manuscripts for the New Testament, we are very close to the time from between the time writing and the time of the first manuscripts. It's amazing how close that is. With the Hebrew scriptures, um, for the longest time, the earliest Hebrew text we have was around 800 A.D. Um, until the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so we often call what we have is the Masoretic text. The Masoretes were scribes. Uh, Jewish scribes, and, and they did their work oh, four, 500 to 800, so uh, A.D. So their writing and their work was four or 500 years after Christ. In this text, one letter is changed, and the vowels are, are, are such that it reads differently than what I've just been reading. Uh, the, the NET Bible, uh, the Net Bible, um, kind of reflects it when it says this, in, in for two, uh, chapter 22, verse 16, Yes, wild dogs surrounds me, and a gang of evil men crowd around me. Like a lion, they pin my hands and feet. That word, like a lion, is, is the word where it should read pierced. But, there's, but the, there's a change in a letter, and the vowels are different than that. But that reflects a manuscript that goes back to, again, about 800 A.D., the Greek translation of the text, which was done about 200 years before Christ by Jewish scholars, has the word pierced here. When they looked at the text, they understood it as pierced. And we have the oldest Hebrew fragment that has now been found in the generally area of the Dead Sea Scrolls has the word pierced here. So it almost looks like the rabbis hundreds of years after Jesus Pierced. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that cannot be. And, and I won't go into what the... It's, it's just a change of how long a certain letter, part of one letter is, and change some vowels. But I would take it the, the authentic reading is, they pierced my hands and feet. A thousand years before the time, David was describing the son of David on a cross, a Roman cross. And again, I already mentioned Zechariah 12.10. They will look upon me whom they pierced. That's a different Hebrew word there, but that identifies the Messiah, the pierced one, the pierced one. 
again, to show you what the Scripture says in the New Testament, thinking about Psalm 2, 22, excuse me. In John chapter 19, verses 36 and 37, John 19, verses 36 and 37, these things were done that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of my bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So Jesus and the apostles saw Psalm 22 as predicting the cross of Jesus. And then in verses 19 to 21, the close of this section of the cross, a prayer for deliverance. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. The psalm predicts the assurance that Jesus has that the wrath will pass, the abandonment set aside. And in fact, we see that in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. In Luke 23, 46, when Jesus cried out, then Jesus, when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, now you welcome me. The abandonment is over. The condemnation is over. The wrath is over. And now, Father, I'm coming home. And he breathed his last. We could surely stop there, but I just want to briefly point you to the second half of the psalm. He says in verses 22 and 23, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. There's the assurance and all the cry for, for grace. God heard. The abandoned will be restored. So the crucified in these, in these previous verses, 22 to 24, he's anticipating worshiping with the assembly. I will, I will gather with God's people. That's resurrection. So if verses 1 to 21 are, are, are crucifixion, now we see resurrection, life after death, hope. The abandoned will be restored, verses 25 and following. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, and all those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. And so you see what he's saying there is, don't you see some great commission-type verses there? 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations. Here he's, he's talking here in a thousand years before Christ that the fruit of the cross is the preaching of the gospel and the receipt of the gospel across the nations. And, that, and ultimately culminating in, for the kingdom is yours. And God's kingdom will be a glorious reign of this abandoned one, this crucified one, this mocked and derided and rejected one will, will bring in a gospel that will reach the world and ultimately he will reign as, 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 in, as the king of the kingdom. And all the prosperous of the earth, he said, shall worship Verse 22, chapter 22, verse 31 says, They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. Future generations will hear that he has done this. Notice that last phrase, that he has done this. You could paraphrase that. It is finished. It is finished. The final words of the psalm of the cross, it is finished. And see, when it is finished, when he's paid the price, and that, is, that assures the next part of resurrection, of the gathering of a people, of the establishment of a kingdom. The psalm darkly reveals the reality of the cross and its physical brutality and its emotional and spiritual assault on our Lord. But it doesn't stop there. After the cross, grace, grace and glory. Because the one who was abandoned and forsaken, in so doing, was opening a way for us to be forgiven and adopted into God's family. And at the end of the psalm, after contemplating the, the horrors of the cross and the fruits of the cross, again, that final phrase, he did it. And Jesus' glorious words when he can cry out, it is finished. And having said that, he then can say, Father, bring me home. I commend your, my spirit into your hands. You could see, I'm, I was having to push myself. There are several sermons in that psalm. But sometimes we need to step back and see it in its beauty. And if nothing else, I would recommend, if you wouldn't uh, think before, the, before Good Friday or even on Good Friday, uh, those first 21 verses. This psalm was in our Lord's heart. And I've so often told you, I think about young Jesus. Even at the age of 12, when he's left behind in the temple, didn't you know I'd be, about, I'd be in my father's house? He knew who he was. He knew his calling. I wonder how often as he had gone to the Passover and seen the sacrifice of the, the lambs that were slain and then left the city of Jerusalem, did he cast his eye over to Golgotha and think about God's plan for him? When he left heaven to come, he knew the plan. More than incarnation, 
more than physical suffering, the thought abandoned by my father, condemned by my father. But he has done it for us. Father, thank you for filling David's heart with a message of such clarity. Father, thank you for the ultimate son of David who came to fulfill this song. And he did it. It's finished. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. That you would send your son to die in this way. That you might bring many sons and daughters into your family. Father, we worship you as a God of amazing grace. And we thank you for your love and pray you'd enable us to to live a life of gratitude and worship. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.